Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 132. I think all of us have at some point in our lives picked something and spent hours and hours trying to get better at it. And we've gone through the stages of novice to amateur. And then at some point realizing, Oh my God, there's a long way between here and mastery. But, uh, and some of us keep going. And that's what we're going to talk about today with our guest. Our guest is David Epstein. David has written a book called The Sports Gene, which is a New York Times bestseller, very popular among athletes, among people who are uh, serve some sort of function within the athletic world and in pro sports and so on, and also popular just among people who are interested in nature versus nurture, the, the whether or not genes make us uh, experts in things or give us the power to do really well, or it's all about practice. And he also really, really takes apart the 10,000-hour rule and explains it in great detail in a way that will make it make sense to you forever. We're going to talk about that a lot in the interview. And uh, it's a great book, even if you're not into sports. That's because uh, it's about practice in general is a big part of the book. And whether it's like video games or anything that you're into that uh, from something that's competitive or something where you're just trying to uh, beat your own personal record over and over again or trying to beat some sort of world record, the book applies to all of that stuff. So let's pick his brain. So David, you say early on in your book that the only way you can hit a ball at high speed is to be able to see into the future. Could you explain what you mean by that? Right. Well, it it turns out that um, a a major league fastball, for example, is actually moving too fast for human biology really to react to it. So the average reaction time of major league hitters um, is about 200 milliseconds or a fifth of a millisecond. uh, Sorry, a fifth of a second. And that's... That's basically the same as teachers, doctors, lawyers. They're, they're nothing special. And that's just the minimum time it takes to see that there's a ball in flight for that information to cross the synapses to the back of your brain and for you just to even start your muscles moving. And that's half the total flight time of the pitch, just to start your muscles moving. Mm-hmm. Add that to the fact that you know we've all gotten that little league advice, keep your eye on the ball, but actually our eyes can't track um, an object as its angular position is changing that rapidly as it gets close to your head. So that, that advice is nonsense. You could actually close your eyes once the ball were halfway in if it weren't psychologically upsetting. So we really aren't equipped to be able to react to things moving that fast. But what major league hitters learn to do through specific kinds of practice is to unconsciously pick up on 
body movements of the pitcher, so shifts of the pitcher's torso, rotation of the pitcher's shoulder, the, the flicker of the, of the ball, which is the flashing pattern that the seams make when the ball rotates. And as soon as that is out of the pitcher's hand, and even before, they use that to make a judgment about where the ball um, is going to go in the future. And, and that's the only way that they're able to do what they do. In fact, if you ever watch Major League Hitler, you'll see they're actually starting their swing sequence well before the ball has been released because there's, there's no way for them to react to it fast enough. It's completely built on sort of this learned expertise. Now, what makes that really, really cool, really, really fascinating is, first of all, you know, I think I had thought for many years that, uh, you know, they're doing this sort of um, uh, beautiful mind kind of thing whenever the ball is headed toward them. Like there's all these computations. It's, yeah. almost, like, it's almost like what the Terminator sees, like all yeah. these uh, <laughs> graphs all and the numbers things. are going all over the place. Um, but it's, you talk about, I mean, it. I think it gives us some insight into how everything in life uh, works and that, um, you know, you're over time, lots and lots of experience with certain situations builds up this um, database, as you call it, of intuition. And then we respond to those things without thinking. And that's what we're actually watching when it comes to great athletes is our people that have put a, spent a lot of time working out their intuition on top of whatever skills they have. Um, would you agree with that? I, I would absolutely agree with that. And I think you know, as you alluded to, not, not just great athletes, but things that we all do. I mean, think of, you know, it, it might not be an exact analogy, but, but think about skills that we all automate. Like when you learned how to drive a car and you had to think, oh, hand over hand and look here and look there. And now, you know, assuming nothing unexpected happens, like you can do it while talking on a cell phone or putting on makeup or whatever, right? You don't have to think about those steps because you're unconsciously picking up on the cues the changing sizes of cars around you to tell how, how, how quickly you're approaching them. That's actually one of the key visual cues that NASCAR drivers um, use is the, is the changing size of cars in their field of view that they react to really quickly. And, and, and we sort of learn these systems and patterns that allow us not only to interpret what's happening, but, but to remember better what's happening. And like, so everyone listening to this has mastered the English language, right? And if I gave them Twenty random English words, they probably wouldn't be able to repeat them back to me. But if I gave them a 20-word sentence, they might be able to repeat them back to me because they've learned a system of grammar and groups or, or chunks, um, mm -hmm. of, of, as I call them in the book, of, of phrases and words that have meaning to them. So that instead of like looking at a random chessboard, they're looking at something that has meaning and they're able to interpret it and consequently to remember it as well. And could you sort of... Um Explain why it is then that a softball pitcher can beat a professional baseball hitter because um, it, it plays right into what we're talking about here. We're actually seeing a demonstration of it. Yeah, exactly. So that's, this is the story in the first chapter of the book is of a woman named Jenny Finch who was um, an elite softball pitcher who sort of in an exhibition struck out some, major league, some of the best major league baseball hitters, uh, you know, some of them ever. And... Um, you know, they didn't even hit foul balls off her. And, and she did so well that it just turned into a TV show where she would go around um, with Fox once a week to a different baseball training camp and strike out their best hitter. And these guys couldn't figure out, you know, invariably they would say, like, girls hit this stuff? <laughs> and and they, they thought they were going to hit her. She pitches from closer than a normal major league mound. Mm -hmm. But because she pitches so much slower, about low to mid 60 miles per hour, the transit time of her pitch is actually longer. And some of the pitches they're used to facing, and the ball's bigger. So, 
you know, logically, you'd kind of think they should have a better chance of hitting it. But again, because they don't have special reaction speeds, they need to rely on those, those, those interpretive skills that they've learned. And she has completely different shifts of her body, totally different rotation of the shoulder because she's throwing underhanded. The spin of the ball is completely different. So all those cues that they had learned to pick up on that allow them to do something that's otherwise impossible are gone when they face her. And consequently, the best hitters in baseball could not even hit a foul ball off her. I mean, so many guys had gotten embarrassed that by the time she got to Alex Rodriguez, he, he refused even to, to go and step into the batter's box against her. He finally wised up. The, um, and you know, we'll go, I want to go back to chunking just for a second, but it, you, know, you talk about in the book how you know, when it comes to boxing or baseball, it's, they're both too fast, you know, one too fast to hit and one too fast to dodge. And so the skill oh, yes. comes from um, practice and this cognitive database that you build up that lets you overcome the fact that we live a little bit in the past. You know, we live like a second yeah. and a half of the past. And then we also have to wait for our senses to catch up and, uh, and everything be processed by the brain. So when you practice anything, it's like you're, uh, you're, you're preparing yourself to predict the future and to react as if you will know what happens next. And I've noticed that um, even like uh, competitive video games, like a competitive fighting game or um, uh, something like uh, StarCraft, where there's lots of like... Uh, of strategic things happening. Like when you watch people play that competitively, it looks like they're actually psychic. That's the most, it's like magical to see. It's like they can predict every single thing. The other person, it's like a Kung Fu movie where they see all all the hits coming and they go pop, 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 pop. So, and like your book really gave me that epiphany. Like, well, that is what's happening. You are becoming a reasonable psychic. Like you have a probabilistic, um, chart that's going down inside your mind unconsciously that says there's a ninety percent chance this is going to wa- this is what's going to happen next if I see these conditions in front of me. Um, totally. So would you say that expertise is sort of a word that we use to describe that that database? Yeah, for for the most part, yes, I would. And and to go, you know, it's like what you just said reminds me of that scene. I think the movie was, I think it was House of Flying Daggers. Um, although it could have been could have been Hero and one of those one of those great Chinese films um the there's like a scene where two expert martial artists like play out their entire fight in their mind oh yeah and, and then just conclude it kind of and it's it's amazing you know they're just sort of predicting one another's movements and and you mentioned boxing i mean muhammad ali from from the first percept not from when he decided to throw a jab but from the first perceptible movement to the time when he could get his arm to someone's face was 40 milliseconds so it's like a quarter of the minimum human reaction time so if you weren't already judging where that was going well ahead of time, then you'd be hit by every punch. Yeah. So it sort of forms a metagame in which both experts are trying to deceive the other person's intuition. So um, as if they ha- they're trying to do things that will cause the other person's brain to predict that the next thing that's going to happen is going to be this, and then they actually do this. And that's what that just makes it just this, uh, this another level of, it's, you know, it's two brains versus one another's intuitions. I think that's amazing. Totally. I mean, if, if you watch the World Cup at all recently, like so many of the things that the guys who have the best ball handling skills do isn't even touching the ball. They're just like whipping their foot around the ball in various motions to try to, to throw off the defender's anticipatory skill. It's not even moving the ball in a direction. It's like <laughs> dancing around the ball to say, like, I'm going this way, I'm going that way, which is, I find to be um, really, really interesting. Or in the NFL now, you know? So eye tracking studies will show that like if I were playing quarterback I would follow the guy I want to throw to whereas Peyton Manning 
would do like what master chess players do and look at spaces between players that show kind of how their relationship is going to develop. And so what defenses have taken to is trying to confuse that by like moving guys around a lot before the play starts. And all that is is trying to confound his ability to read the chessboard early on. Because once the play starts, he has, I mean, I think he has like a second and a half is his average time to snap from snap to release. It's not like you can consciously think back to all the film study you've done in a second and a half. <laughs> right. I mean, you talk about how thinking actually oh, you know, obliterates this effect. Like that you have to get to the point where you are making executive decisions about suggestions being handed to you from the unconscious, basically, right? Yeah, that's right. And that's, that's why I refer to the work of Sion Bylock, University of Chicago, on choking, where you know, it's sort of, y- you work really hard to automate a skill, you know, move it to those sort of less, quote-unquote, thinking parts of your brain. And then if you start thinking, uh, you basically drag it back into the part of your brain that you know, is used when you're a novice performer. That's not what you want to do. So that's the whole point of taking a timeout to ice a guy, to make them, to make, literally to make them think about it. So in that case, Sort of the the folkloric language that coaches used, making someone think about it, actually is quite <laughs> quite accurate. <laughs> I love this like so much uh, that we write about or that we read studies about. You know, things that people have been doing have things that people have figured out through trial and error that um, have a uh, cognitive or neurological underpinning. I love when that happens, and the the fact that uh, trash talking has some sort of neurological uh, effect on. <laughs> <laughs> what we're talking about I, is such a beautiful thing. I asked one scientist, um, you know, well, so if this is the case, who studies tennis? Well, what, what would you recommend then, you know, to, to get someone out of their zone or whatever? And he said, you know, it's, it's the, the thing to do. So, so baseball players, again, they pick up things like the shoulder rotation is very important for them to pick up. But if you tell them, like, stare at the shoulder, they get worse at it. Like, they need to learn it through practice. Like, you can't just explicitly tell to them. But so with tennis players, he said, well, yeah, you know, when you go shake hands over the net, say, like, boy, I really love how you, that was amazing how you angled your racket head on that last serve. You know, like, <laughs> try to awesome. make them think about something that they're doing without thinking about it. That's so good. I love that. And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire 
and you will get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. 
Um, let me uh, go over chunks really quickly before I move into the other thing, and uh, and then what the way it made you made it make sense for me was when you talked about chess players, where you have like novice, intermediate, and expert chess players, and you have them look at a chessboard in a flash, and you get three very different um, reactions to that. Could you sort of um, elaborate on that? Yeah, so this was a famous study done by a by a chess master, actually, where. Um, he took, starting in the, in the forties, he took chess players of different skill levels and wanted to kind of find out why some were better than others, basically. And he showed them boards, um, with game arrangements and then took those boards away after certain amounts of time and found that the grandmasters could, uh, recreate the entire board after only three seconds of exposure. Like Basically, see it, like see it in their mind, like recreate it in their mind. No, they they could they were given a board and they had to replace the pieces. Oh wow, okay. So they were shown a board, taken away after three seconds, then given a blank board, and they had to put the pieces on. And the, the lower levels couldn't do that, and it, it tracked with the level. Like the grandmaster, um, you know, could do it after three seconds, like ninety five percent of the time. The master, like seventy percent of the time. You know, the novice player basically never. And in that original study, so it was sort of assumed that the grandmasters had just better memory, like they just were gifted with better memory. And then you know, about three decades later, that study was repeated. But this time, after that original study was repeated, there was an, a component where the players were given a board that had non-meaningful arrangement, game arrangements. You know, it wasn't like total chaos, but it was arrangements that you would not actually find in a game. Mm-hmm. And with that, the uh, the researchers were able to render the grandmasters back into novices. So it turned out that the grandmasters could only, you know, perform this sort of apparent feat of memory when they were given a board that made sense. So it makes a much stronger argument that it's actually that they had learned the board the way that we learn language. Again, mm-hmm. by by learning these groups of pieces and arrangements of pieces that have great meaning for them so that it's, it's not, it's embedded in a narrative. It's not difficult to remember. So they're, they're, they're forming chunks or groups of information that allow them to not be staring at, you know, X number of chaotic pieces of data and trying to remember them one at a time. That's so great because I know that there's another aspect of it is that, you know, we, I know I thought this until I read your book that great chess masters can see like, you know, 11, 15 moves into the future. I also thought that. And it's more like um, I immediately thought of those uh, those paragraphs that have the the let, the words are kind of garbled, but there's enough information there to make out what yeah. the sentence is. Yeah, and it's more about having that familiarity with how words usually go together than you know because this you can if you look at a sentence written in another language, it's the same letters, but we're like it's very difficult. So it's very similar to what you're talking about with the pieces. And that you say that they've chunked them. In other words, they're remembering all the the usual relationships that usually happen on a usual game of chess. And after a long time, you've seen, even though there's millions of ways that a chessboard could unfold, there are only so many ways that it usually unfolds. And that's what they've sort of got a familiarity for, correct? That, that's right. And it's the same way that you know, you've know you learned sort of usual phrases. Like you, you could probably you make a more accurate guess than someone who's not an English speaker of what phrase is coming from me based on the first part of my sentence and things mm. like that. But and and actually, just to clarify the point a little bit, the chess the chess players actually do see moves ahead or predict moves ahead, but that's not but that's like not exclusive to grandmasters. So it doesn't that's not what separates them because they end up picking better moves mm-hmm. um, okay, from yeah. those ones that they're seeing. 
And so, yeah, no, I think the way that you put it is, uh, is, is absolutely right. Okay. So all this about practice, uh, giving you this in, intuition, that's great. And then I was very excited reading the book. I was like, okay, cool. That's, that's then I just can practice anything I want and I can become an expert. Um, but then you get into genes and to the 10,000 hour rule. And, yeah. um, anyone who's listening to this podcast, I'm sure is very familiar with this 10,000 hours thing. It's really taken hold of, especially American culture. Um, and of course it's made famous by Malcolm Gladwell and outliers. You, um, let's, let's just say that before we dig into it, how much of an impact would you say the popularization of that Erickson study has been? Oh my gosh. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't planning on like taking it out when I wrote my book proposal, but it was everywhere in the sports psychology literature. I mean, it could just be the the slice of the world that I'm coming from, but my opinion is that it has has just like overwhelmed sports. You know, it sort of became the status quo, um, not for sort of geneticists, but for sports psychologists and in many cases coaches, in many cases coaches who hadn't necessarily even read the um, the actual study. Uh, but it, it is at this point. I added. I just added an afterword to the paperback version of the book, talking about hyper specialization in youth sports, which is something that has ex- been accelerated like crazy because of the ten thousand hour rule idea, and that is completely contradictory to what sports science says we should actually be doing with youth athletes. So I mean, I, I think it's having, yeah, as big a cultural impact as anything I can remember reading in a book in my lifetime. So what was the original study? The original study was done on 30 violinists who uh, were in a world-famous music academy in Berlin. And what the study found was that it, it split, it had the instructors at the academy split these 30 violinists into three different groups based on ability. The top 10 were the future international soloists. Um, the middle 10 were people who could, would get a job at, at a symphony. And the bottom 10 were what they called the future teachers. Um, because that was their their likely career path, and it turned out that one of the differences between the groups, in in retrospective recall at least, was the average number of hours they spent practicing alone over the course of their life, mm-hmm. and the top group had averaged uh, ten thousand hours retrospective. Actually, their retrospective recall was inconsistent on multiple tries. But anyway, the the top group had averaged ten thousand hours of practice alone, this kind of effortful practice or deliberate practice that's focused on improving your weaknesses by the age of 20. And so the conclusion drawn from that was that, you know, there's no such thing as talent and that um, it was just these, their difference in hours of practice. I mean, there were other differences in the study. They also slept 5.4 hours more a week than any of the other groups did, but it didn't become the 5.4 hours more a week of sleep rule. Um, but <laughs> So that was the conclusion drawn from that study, and I have a lot of things to say about it. And so does Anders Ericsson, actually. He now, he's been so dismayed by the translation of his work um, in the media. He has, a, he has a letter linked on his faculty webpage at Florida State now titled The Danger of Delegating Education to Journalists. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, but is that fair? Because, um, uh, I mean, you've actually, you've sat down, you've, you've sat down with Malcolm Gladwell. Do you think, yeah. it's, it was, do you think it's Gladwell's fault? Or do you, or is it a misinterpretation? What do you, what do you think is going on there? I think it's a number of things. So, so first of all, I, I don't think that's totally, it's totally fair because I, I think Erickson has to bear some of the responsibility for this. He didn't include a measure of variance in the study, right? So mm-hmm. 
when I asked him about the study, he says, well, the, the, you know, was it really 10,000 hours? He said, well, most of them did not reach 10,000 hours, but a small number who had way over 10,000 hours skewed the average, right? So right. first of all, by taking an average, you eliminate individual differences just by definition when you don't include a measure of variance. And then um, they were inconsistent on, on multiple accounts, and the variance was significant, but then he, he drew unfair conclusions. So you, that study started with a, people, a group of people who were so highly pre-screened they'd already gained admission to a world-famous music academy, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's a massive what statisticians would call restriction of range problem, and it's the worst kind because you're restricting based on the dependent variable of your study. You're studying skill but restricting your subjects based on skill. That'd be like, that'd be like setting up a study of basketball skill restricting your subjects to NBA centers, right. noticing they'd all practiced a lot, and saying, well, only practice got them to the NBA, not practice plus being seven feet tall. <laughs> so you have to right. be careful about your conclusions. Now, Gladwell does give like sort of a, an aside to talent in the chapter. He says, like, well, yes, talent matters. But you know, he, he does call it a magic number to expertise, and he does call it a rule. And I think that magic number to expertise phrase really stuck with people. You know, and, and he himself, when we've been on the radio together, says, well, it obviously doesn't apply to sports. But I would argue that sports is where it has been the most applied, even though that's, that's not really his idea. I think his idea is more a version of what we'd call the threshold hypothesis, meaning that once you have a certain level of talent, then practice is what differentiates people. Right. But I don't think that's entirely clear either. I mean, so if the idea eventually just boils down to the fact that lots of training is really important, I don't really think that that's been controversial for quite a long time. And well, yeah, I mean, it's caught on everywhere. I've heard it. I saw it. Um, I watched a documentary about DJs where um, a DJ just mentions the 10,000. He's like, you know, I, all I have to do is put in my 10,000 hours. So it's everywhere. I think everyone has somehow, you know, cultural osmosis has brought this into everyone's minds. Yeah. I mean, the, the, if, if the idea is just that practice is important, I'm all for that. <laughs> but like, I, I met a coach when I was in Australia recently, a soccer coach who showed me his training plan to take kids from age 8 to 18 in exactly 10,000 hours of practice. Hadn't even, didn't even realize he was extrapolating violin research to, right. to what he was doing. But, but the problem with it really is that early hyper-specialization, that that's the path to success in most sports, jury's out for some sports, but for most sports, it's totally contradicted by the emerging body of science. So my, my concern is it's actually pushing us in the wrong direction for a lot of youth athletes, both for their health and actually for the athletic development. So you said you mentioned that um, a second ago. I think that a lot of people believe that you um, you take children and you you know you grab them from an early age and you can mold them into um, super athletes. And um, you're saying the evidence doesn't support that. What, why is that? And what should we be doing? So the the kind of I guess Tiger Woods would be like the apotheosis of the ten thousand hours, right? Who's just he's demonstrating his swing for Bob Hope at age two. And people have really grappled onto that story. But first of all, golf is, it, I, I, to be fair, I have to say it's sort of unclear if hyperspecialization is the way to go in golf. It, it may be, it may not be. There's not enough research to say. But for the vast majority of other sports, the path, eventual elite athletes are actually practicing less in their final, in their future sport as children than are athletes who plateau at sub-elite. What they're doing in that time is through at least age 12, they sample a range of sports. So uh, up through age 12 seems to be this critical period. By the way, that's, that's the cutoff for when you can change your native language. After age 12, you don't really change your native language. It also seems to be a period by which you have to have been exposed to chess or your, your 
chance of ever becoming a grandmaster drops like 50-fold. And it also looks like it's this critical period for sampling a variety of sports where you, you learn a variety of physical skills and also get a chance to find out what sports fit your physiology and your psychology. So actually, the typical, the typical pattern of an elite athlete is probably what most people would consider an exception. It's like a Steve Nash, the two-time NBA MVP, mm. who played a variety of sports as a kid, didn't even own a basketball until he was 13. Goes on to become one of the most skilled basketball players of all time, and not like a big guy. So it's hard to say, you know, I mean, he's probably 5'11". So you can't really say, you know, he, I mean, Hakeem Olajuwon didn't, didn't play basketball until he was 17, went on to become the most skilled center of all time. But you could say, well, you know, he's 6'10", so it's not like he's a normal guy. But this, the typical pattern is actually this early sampling period. They have, the kids have way lower, it, it doesn't mean spending less time in sports. It means less time specializing in one sport. The kids have way less injuries. They report more enjoyment, but they also seem to have better skill development. We're totally moving away from that, which is a shame. So, okay, let's. I want to put the ten thousand hour thing. Uh, I want to, you know, totally make sure that people listening have an, a new education, a new understanding of it. You, you talked the the story about Holm versus Thomas just crushed me. By the way, the the, uh, the idea that this guy spent. So like like fifteen seventeen years learning how to do the high jump was that yeah. it twenty and, yeah <laughs> oh my god and becoming a, so much that he like made his Achilles tendon like you know a piston it's amazing and then <laughs> yeah. and then this guy just is like mm, I'm gonna give this a shot and this does it like first try is doing like you know uh, world record jumps and then after just a six months of training is actually coming close to beating the world record and so you. You use that as a as a way to illustrate that you know, obviously genes matter. Obviously, the environment in which those genes get a chance to uh, be expressed matters. And you know, if a person who's seven feet tall is going to be a better basketball player than a person who's four feet tall, that's just and that and gene and genes determine those things. We know that. And despite that, you know, this ten thousand hour rule comes around, and I think uh, you you basically boil it down to if everybody was genetically equal and we all grew up in the same circumstances, then the 10,000 hour rule would be absolute, but it's, but it, we don't. And so it's not, would you say that is the biggest thing people miss about that research? Yeah, I think so. I mean that, and also, so you're right. Like if we all, if we were all identical twins, only practice would separate us. And if we all had an identical environment, only genes would separate us. But in truth, it's always a sliding scale. So I, I think, yeah, I think that's one of the big misconceptions. I think one of the other big misconceptions is that because of the definition of practice that Erickson uses is that people take it to mean, or at least coaches, that in my experience, to mean that learning should be more explicit so that we should be telling, like it has to be more structured. And again, that's the opposite of what the sports science is saying. It's saying that this sampling period through age 12 gives, gives kids a chance to do, you know, what some scientists call learn like a baby, learn implicitly, learn without explicit instruction. And that's actually turns out to be a great way to learn certain skills and makes those skills more resistant to pressure-induced choking when they're learned implicitly. Mm-hmm. Even, even surgery is now being taught with implicit teaching in some ways. And, and one of the, there's a researcher named Jean Cote at Queen's University in Canada who looks at data on, he, he looks at odds ratios. for what, what are the odds of someone making it to the pros in a certain sport based on the size of the hometown they grew up in? And as the 10,000 hours rule has pushed this sort of professionalization of youth sports because you need this highly coached early training, the towns that can, so larger towns where you get the coaches with the most technical expertise and the best facilities now produce no pro athletes, basically. Hmm. So 
if you look at every single sport, he's done this for like 13 different sports. And towns of 50,000 to 99,000 in the U.S. are vastly overrepresented from 10 to 30 times higher odds of making the pros, depending on what sport you're looking at. And these are towns, he's starting to profile some of them, where the coaches don't have much technical expertise, the facilities are no good, but the coach is like a guy who has a key to the gym, and he has continuity with the kids, so he knows them and he can sort of help their personal development, and he facilitates implicit learning, which is, which is why, so it's funny that this well-intentioned move toward explicit training seems to have now made sure that all the athletes come from these smaller towns where they aren't hyper-structured and they're able to sport sample early on. Yeah, I'm, uh, I have a famous football player from uh, my hometown, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. So um, I have, but that town is about 70,000 uh, people. So um, I, I, I can pull up the, hold on, and he's in football? Yeah. Hold on, let me, let me pull up this, uh, I can pull up the birthplace slides really quick. Let's see the odds ratio. Here, I'll go through, we'll go through football. Um, so football... It, from a town of, so of course, an odds ratio of one means that your chance of making it to the pros is as likely as normal. Um, okay. And lower means your chances are less and higher is that. So in, in football in the United States, your chance of making the NFL, if you come from a city greater than 5 million people, your odds ratio is 0.01. Oh, wow. If you come from a town of 50,000 to 99,000, it's 10.8 times normal. And, wow. and And that's not even high. I mean, for... Women's golf, it's 27 times normal from that town size. Um, I think, I can't remember baseball, but it was high seed. Basketball. So we think of basketball, kids coming from big inner city. If you're from a town of greater than 5 million, your odds ratio of making the NBA, 0.37. Town of 2.5 million to 5 million, 0.55. 1 million to 2.5 million, 0.33. Town of 50,000 to 99,000, 10.9 times normal. <laughs> That is amazing. Baseball is 20.8 times normal from that size town. Wow. I will mention this if I get a chance to speak to uh, to Brett Favre any time in the future. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I will say, that, do you know why? Oh, right. I didn't even, oh, yeah, that's funny. I didn't even put that one together. <laughs> uh, yeah, he lives not very far from my parents. And he, um, yeah, that's, uh, I, will, I will actually mention that and we'll see what he, said, what he has to say. I'll get back to okay. you. Okay, <laughs> great. Um Okay, so well, before we go, uh, I'm going to ask you to give everybody some advice. So, you know, a big part of um, this whole idea of practice, you talk about how not only do you need to, you know, you know, it's all everything's a mixture of genes and environment, and um, you know, um, and it's practice, and that's before you start the practice. A lot of things need to be in your favor, and then actually during your training. Um, in all sports, all sorts of other factors come into play that make that training more or less effective. You could, it could be your visual acuity, uh, mm. your depth perception, um, and even the strange like extra level of just your willpower to do the training. Even if you have visual acuity and depth perception, you also have to have this willpower and endurance, all this other stuff. Um, so it seems to me that this big takeaway from the book is that since to be great at something, you Need to, and this doesn't have to be sports. It could be anything. Um, you have to practice a lot. Mm-hmm. And what you get out of that practice is going to be determined uh, in large part by your genes and how those genes have been modeled. Let me ask you this. Do you have any advice? Uh, it seems to me like you're, you should figure out what it is that you can best pursue. And um, that you might be... Uh, then you can figure out what you should be working on every day. So do you have any advice on figuring out what it is that you're good at? Yeah, I... I I do, and and because um, 
So I would have all sorts of like technical physiological advice if it were asking about a specific sport. But, but since we're talking in generalities, like for anybody doing anything here, then let me give sort of generalities about it, which is to take, uh, you know, I, I love this quote that, that I use in the book by J.M. Tanner, who was a world-class hurdler and was the world's expert in body growth and development. And he says something like, I won't get it exactly, but um, every one of us has a completely unique genome. Therefore, for optimal development, everyone should ideally have a completely unique environment, right? And, and part of what I don't like about how some people have interpreted the 10,000 hours rule is this idea that the same path of development would work for every person. And that's exactly contradicted by what exercise genetics is showing. So just like medical genetics showed that because you have a different gene involved in acetaminophen metabolism from mine, you might need three Tylenol while I only need one. Or maybe Tylenol doesn't work for you at all. The same thing is throwing, showing up for the medicine of training. No two people respond to any particular training the same way. And we see that in lots of cookie cutter exercise programs where people get widely varying results. So I think the most important thing is to go in to whatever you're doing with a sense that you are a scientific experiment of N equals one with a mind toward trial and error. And if you're not getting um, the same results as your training partner is to try something else. And then to go through that process that I described for, um, you know, soccer players from the Netherlands who go on to the pros exhibit what's called self-regulatory behavior and self-assessing behavior. They, they do something, they reflect, then they stop and think about what they need to get better at. They, they think of something that they can try to get better at that, and then they assess it, and they continually assess and assess and assess. So they're always tweaking what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons why the athletes exhibiting that behavior, you know, of course, they also have to have a certain running speed they also found, but they need that behavior is because they start homing in on that ideal environment for their unique genome. And so I think that can apply across almost anything you're doing instead of that cookie-cutter approach is viewing, viewing your own training as this unparalleled um, uh, sort of inquiry into who you are um, as, as a biological machine. That's fantastic. And, and let me ask you one really weird question, okay? This is, kind of, this is, just, this is just philosophical, okay? Just your opinion. Um, would you recommend that we pursue those things for which we have a natural aptitude over things we wished we were good at? Uh, if, if by wished we were good at means that it's something that you love, then my first suggestion is, is to pursue something you love. Because, I mean, I see, I see so many athletes. I mean, I, I know I keep in touch with a lot of retired NFL players. Um, and, and, you know, in some cases, they, like, aren't uh, active anymore. You know, in some cases, they were these big, huge guys that somebody said, oh, you have to play football. And I'm not sure they ever really loved football. I think they liked the camaraderie and they liked being good at it. Um, you know, but there's, there's just a study out uh, by a guy from USC showing that in the past, college Division I athletes maintained higher physical activity levels through life than, than the typical person. And that has now actually disappeared. Now, Division one athletes, they regress right to normal, sort of not very good average American activity levels. And I think part of that is because we're so focused on, um, you know, structured training and, and what we think will maximize somebody's ability that we're getting people in sports they don't necessarily love or we're getting them in a sort of a environment that's so hyper-structured that they don't even know how to be physically active in a good way once they're done with that competition time. And so I think if we're talking about skills for life, um, then you have to factor in love to it. Now, I, I go through some examples in the book where 
uh, you know, Australia and the UK where they did so-called talent transfer, where they, they took someone, you know, or, or one story, Alberto Juan one of the greatest track athletes of all time, the last and maybe the only, or maybe one of two men to ever win both the 400 and the 800 meters at the Olympics, a Cuban man, mm-hmm. was training to be a basketball player and, and was just in love and obsessed with basketball. And then a Cuban sports official came to him and said, how about track? Because he would always like be able to keep up with the track runners when they did drills. And he said, no, no, you know basketball is my life. I, I can't do anything else. And they said, well, actually, we've already decided for you. You're going to do track. And that worked out well. And he's been involved in track and field the whole rest of his life. So maybe you know that level of success really sort of spurs you on. But I, 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 really, don't, I really think that people have to, at the very least, people have to be allowed to make that decision for themselves, not, pu- not pushed towards it by other people only because they're good um, if, it's, if it's not the way they want to go. I think everyone should have the right to do something that might not be the ideal fit for them. In the, all the physiological tests, sorry, I'm going on and on, but in all the physiological testing that I did during my reporting of the book, I found that the um, ideal, I was most physiologically similar to elite level short track speed skaters. Um, and, and I was a Division One 800-meter runner. You know, and would I have switched to short track speed skating? I mean, I kind of think that's a cool sport anyway. But, but I had like a life-changing experience because of my teammates and, and you know, some of the things I was able to do in track. So I'm not sure that you necessarily have to be in your best fit all the time. Oh, man. There's so much to think about. Um, your book is really great. And uh, it, you know, if you're, even if you're not a person who's into sports, I highly recommend it because it really, it's really about nature versus nurture through the lens of looking at people who have pushed themselves to great physical limits. And, um, so those are the greatest people to look at when it comes to nature versus nurture. And, um, you did a great job of illustrating all of that. Um, so I'm just saying, I really like the book. Um, well, I appreciate that. I'm a fan of your work. I hope we keep in touch. Yeah. Yeah. So if people out there want to find you on the internet, mm-hmm. uh, and keep up with you, how do they do that? Um, they can, if they want to, Contact me. I have a website that has a forwarding address that's david at the sportsgene.com. And I, I sometimes get a little overwhelmed, um, so I can be a little slow, but I do try to respond to things. Um, and I'm on Twitter at, at David Epstein. Um, and if somebody uh, you know, tweets at me enough that I make sure to see it, I, I pretty much I usually respond. Okay. And what are you working on next? What's coming up? Um, I'm, uh, I'm actually working on... Uh, so I left Sports Illustrated. Um, sometime after my book, I joined a place called ProPublica that houses sort of a group of investigative reporters. And I'm working on an investigative piece that I guess I'm not really supposed to say anything about right now. But, okay. Okay. Um, but, but I'm, I'm at the point where I'm, I'm far enough removed from my book now, almost a year, that I'm starting to think about potential um, other book projects. You know, and, I'm, and I'm interested in questions about, you know, having spent a lot of time on the genetics, I'm interested in questions about, well, genetics are what they are. How can we get the most out of people and out of teams? You know, once we, we basically studying activities to find out what things, figuring out what matters to performance, but more importantly, which of those factors are actually changeable. That's a question mm-hmm. that I'm always really interested in. Well, uh, I look forward to that, and I really thank you for coming on my show. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you.
That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about in this episode, you can go to youarenotsosmart.com. If you'd like to follow the show on Twitter, it is at NotSmartBlog. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I am at David McRaney. You can go to Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart to join in on all of the conversations happening there about the show and stuff that happens around the show. This uh, this song you're listening to that is by Banjo Apocalypse. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. You can listen to the previous episodes of this show over at YouAreNotSoSmart.com or Stitcher or SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. This is a rebroadcast, uh, but we have new shows coming up after this. Um, why people who are politicians aren't great at talking about science and all sorts of other stuff coming up soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.